You are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. tuning into this episode of the black girl nerds podcast my name is jamie and in this episode it is hosted by ryan and guess what this is a crime filled episode of the bgm podcast now let me explain we have our first segment and our guest in that first segment is co-creator and executive producer jenny lumette of clarice Clarice is the series that is currently on CBS, and the series is set in 1993 after a year of the events of The Silence of the Lambs. The series is a deep dive into the untold story of Clarice Starling as she returns to the field to pursue serial murders and sexual predators while navigating the high-stakes political world of Washington, D.C. As for Jenny Lumet, she is a brilliant woman, creator, mom, and inspiration. She came from Hollywood royalty as the daughter of Sidney Lumet and the granddaughter of Lena Horne, and she's paved her own path and become a force in film and TV. Her credits include The Man Who Fell to Earth, Star Trek Discovery, and co-executive producer on Star Trek Picard. She's also written many pilots, and she consulted on Fox TV's Sleepy Hollow. In our second segment, we invite prosecutor and legal analyst, as well as reporter, Yawit Tawaldi. Now, she's appeared on CNN, MSNBC, and other networks to provide legal analysts on high-profile cases and hot-button issues. Yoit Tawaldi is a well-respected trial lawyer, legal analyst, and journalist. She's had an established career as a trial attorney and a staunch advocate for criminal justice reform. Her legal expertise has been an asset for media outlets, and her depth of knowledge and expertise of the legal system, as well as its inner workings, makes her invaluable in her roles as host and managing editor of Making the Case with Yodi. Her new primetime show on the Black News Channel premieres this April. Tawaldi is also an opinion contributor for The Hill and The Griot. And in our final segment, we welcome host Elizabeth Vargas. She's an Emmy Award winning journalist that's covered a variety of high profile cases, such as Amanda Knox and John Benet Ramsey. One of the first female Latinx reporters to anchor a nighttime news program. And she's the author of Between Breaths, a memoir of panic and addiction, and the host of Heart of the Matter, which both focus on the importance of opening up about substance use and mental health. Vargas hosted ABC News Magazine 2020 for 15 years. 
And prior to that, she was the anchor of ABC's World News Tonight and the news anchor on ABC's Good Morning America. She's traveled the world covering breaking news stories, reporting in-depth investigations, and conducting newsmaker interviews with world leaders, interviewing everyone from the President of the United States in the Oval Office to the President of Afghanistan. She's anchored ABC's World News Tonight from Iraq during the country's first democratic election in years. And she's won an Emmy for her live coverage of the Ileon Gonzalez Raid, a Peabody Award as a part of ABC's team covering the Millennium and an Edward Armour Award for breaking news coverage of Hurricane Katrina. Before ABC, Vargas worked at NBC News as a correspondent for Dateline and as the anchor of NBC's Weekend News. Most recently, she was named host of A&E Investigates. She is on the board of directors of Partnership to End Addiction. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this fantastic three-segment episode filled with these very prominent, wonderful women covering crime news stories, both real and fictional, on this episode of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Welcome to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan, and whoo, this episode, you guys, got me in my feels. Because we know if you're going to have, let me tell you something. I'm very scary, right? I don't like the scary horror movie. I don't like the horror movie genre. I don't like the psychological thrillers because I get scared. But if you're going to shut a thriller, uh, like a thriller movie trivia night party down, I don't know, I'm making up my own trivia party night. You're going to say hello, Clarice, right? Because everybody knows where this comes from. Like, you're going to shut it down with that line, right? Everybody knows. So we're talking about Silence of the Lambs. Uh, one year after, they're finally, we're finally getting Clarice's story, her side of the story. So we're finally getting that going down here. And I am joined by co-creator, executive producer, Jenny Lumet. I am so excited to have you here, Jenny. This series is unbelievable. Well, thank, first of all, I'm a huge nerd fan and I'm kind of like humbled. I'm like nerd, nerd, humbled in a nerdly fashion to be here. And I'm thrilled that you like Clarice. I like Clarice too. I think it's really freaking, am I allowed to curse? Yeah, My curse on this podcast. Okay, go ahead. Listen, nerds let it out sometime. Go ahead. Okay, I no no only because it <laughs> happens. I was kind of raised by wolves, so this this stuff comes kind of flying out of my mouth sometimes um but i'm really fucking excited to be here <laughs> yeah be, this is well, we're excited to have you we're glad because this series i like listen i'm telling you something i'm hiding behind my pillow like in my bed like this but i gotta see it because i gotta know what's going on i gotta know what's like happening and what's at the end of this episode but before we get into all that though okay by the okay hollywood is the family business let's go ahead and yes, put that is. out there for people that do not know yes it is uh cindy lumet um daughter of cindy lumet uh granddaughter of lena horn but see now we know that this family business, though, I still want to know, because what was it, what was the draw for you? I still want to know, because this industry is not easy. The the ladders, the rooms that you have been in, why mm. was it, why did you say, okay, yes, this is what I need to do. I need to execute with this. I want to work on these projects. Okay, well, here's the thing, and it's actually like a 30-second story, which is that um, my f- son is the fifth mm-hmm generation of people on my family on both sides to be in this business. I'm the fourth generation. My grandma's mom, uh, whose name was Edna, she was in the tent shows in the deep South. So nobody in my family has had like a steady job since the reconstruction. So there was really, it was kind of like, what else, what, what else was I kind of going to do? It didn't make any sense. This was just kind of what for the past hundred in, you know, 110 years, like this is what we've been doing. So we're kind of steeped 
if you know what I mean. Um, it never occurred to me to do anything else. I mean, I'm sure my parents would have loved had I gone to law school or med school or something like that and gotten a respectable job. Um, but this is what it is for better or for worse. And, and, uh, why these particular gigs? Um, well, you know, I mean, so much of it after Rachel getting married, um, it was funny. It's like you, you, you do a, you, I wrote this screenplay and it was the fourth screenplay I'd ever written. And it was very, very successful, but I had no idea what I was doing. It's like, if you kind of get up to, to like, you get up to bat and you hit a home run, but you have no fucking idea how to play baseball. It was kind of like that. So I had to learn what I was supposed to do. And one of the greatest uh, learning grounds for me was Trek. Um, I was always a Trek person in a Nichelle Nichols kind of way. Like she was always my person in the world. Um, and when Alex Kurtzman asked me if I wanted to come learn on Trek, I was like, well, it's only the greatest show ever. So of course I, I want to do that. And exactly. Yeah. The greatest show freaking ever. And, dis- and just like Sinequa and Discovery is just a, a revelation. Um, and so learning craft on Star Trek was the greatest thing I ever could have done in terms mm. of just being a writer and being a decent writer. It completely changed my perspective on so many things. And that built a level of trust between myself and, and Alex Kurtzman, who's the Trek guy now. Um, we got really bold. We wanted to write about families. We wanted to write about like uh, dysfunctional, fucked up relationships, all that kind of stuff. Mm. And when, and I cannot remember if it was my partner or myself who said, where is Clarice Starling after all these years? Um, I really don't. But it occurred to us that all these kind of sad old murdering white men got to say things. And Clarice never got to say boo after she won all the stuff. So I thought maybe it'd be interesting to hear from the girl who won. And it turned out it fucking is. Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, I always thought, you know, I used to be a school teacher, so I get a little bit highfalutin, but I always thought of Clarice like in two ways. One is just this incredibly cool person who I wished, like, what would Clarice do? But I also thought of her in a little bit of the Persephone mold. Like you go down to Hades, you defeat, and but this is the Persephone that certainly tasted the fruit of the dead, but then like decided to come back up to earth and, and kick everybody's ass. So it Go ahead, please. Go ahead, go ahead. No, 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 no I was going to say, too, because um, um, I kind of like, too, where we're going to with the inclusion and diversity, um, you know, going from Shrek to Clarice. And I like this fact of, okay, you have a um, a woman behind the scenes, executive producing. She makes this decision where, okay, like you said, the white males, they're having their say, their story get out there. What about Clarice? Yeah. So I love being able to have that space. Can you talk a little bit about that, like working in that space and being able to share these stories? It's extraordinary. It's hugely liberating. And I'm still in Trek. I still work for Trek and on Trek. Um, I'm, obviously, I'm not a creator on Trek um, because it's it's its own thing. But that, um, to be able to create worlds for Sinequa was really empowering in creating worlds for Rebecca Breeds, the actress who plays Clarice, I'm very aware that I'm, look, I'm 54 years old, I'm a black woman, and I know that I'm not supposed to be in these rooms, yet here I am. And uh, exactly. your, part, 
Yeah, and and I think that you're probably too young. No, everybody knows Bugs Bunny, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. So Bugs Bunny has this kind of like slightly fuck you. I'm here. I'm not supposed to be here. So I'm going to stay here longer kind of thing. And that's really how I feel in these rooms. It's, it's, uh, I'm not supposed to be here, but I'm here and you have to deal with me. And, uh, there's this moment now and I don't, I look, I'm, I'm not an ingenue. I don't know how long this moment is going to last. And I've said that, but in this moment, it's, it's time to push. It's time to sort of demand that, you know, the character of Ardelia is suing the entire FBI for being like racist dis- assholes. Mm-hmm. It's, there's a window to do that now. And um, if I'm here and it's now, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. You, even with, you know, I, coming from the most famous family on the planet, well, a super famous family, um, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't in, in, inure you from the stuff. The stuff is still there and you have to deal with it and swallow it every day. And it's excruciating. I'm not going to say it's not excruciating. At this point, um, all of which was made better by being related to famous people, all of which was made easier by being light skinned. The colorism thing is freaking huge here. Um, And having grown up in white spaces, I had definitely had an advantage in terms of speaking some kind of language. Um, All of that still exists at this point in my life, at this age now. Um, I I have to tolerate significantly less of it. I'm not going to say that it's completely a clean place. It's completely a safe space because it's not. But... I think my job now is to make it safer for the next showrunner who's, who's, you know. And we all need that Bugs Bunny attitude though, really. Because you're right. We're in that time period where it's time. There is, like you said, there, it's not like it's going to completely disappear. You cannot have that mindset that it will completely disappear. And that's why I wanted to ask you that question because it's having that voice, being brave enough to say, listen, I know it's here. But yeah. I have something I need to say. I'm working yes. my way through these doors. I have something I need to say. Yes. I don't believe that anybody who walks around and says, you know, it's all like peace and love and flowers and stuff like that, especially in show business, gets completely disingenuous. It's here. And to to uh, to put it in the conversation, in the rooms, is I find an advantage and not a disadvantage. Um, and I'm pretty straightforward. I, You know, it's usually... On a Zoom, it's although people are seeming to be making an effort, and I have to hand it to CBS, they're making an effort. Um, but it's it's me usually in a sea of white faces on the other side of the Zoom. And the thing exactly. to say in that moment is, look, guys, let's look at this Zoom for a second, and this is a thing. And then everybody nods, and whether or not something happens, okay, but you say it. And then on your part, then you do what you can to change. But to not say it and just be like, and just sort of smile and pretend it's not, that's not what we're doing. That's not what we're doing. If they fire me, they fire me. They can fire me. Okay. I'm old. I don't give a shit. You know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, listen, listen, sometimes you just have to, 
you know, I mean, you have to put it out there. You got to say something. You know, you just can't keep, because when is it never going to change? It's never going to change. Like, how do you get this, Clarice? Like you said, if you're looking at a whole Zoom full of uh, white males that don't know, how are you getting Clarice's story? You're not getting the story. No, you're not. And um, they have been, the CBS team has been incredibly, I know they've been really cool about what we wanted to do. And we told them from the beginning that we didn't do, we did not want to do a standard CBS procedural, which is a wonderful look. And a procedural is a wonderful thing. Trek is a procedural in a way law and order, which has been on the air for 25 years, which is certainly problematic, but that's a procedural. And even the movie silence of the lambs, it's a procedural. You have a woman, she's got to solve an FBI case and she solves it, except for the fact that it's not, it's about everything else sort of, but that, and that's what we wanted. That's what we wanted. There are enough people with earpieces saying, copy, copy on television. I wanted to get into some deep psychic weirdo space. And I wanted to get into the nature of female friendships. And I wanted to get into the nature of interracial female friendships when you don't know what you don't know. That's a big part of the show. And, I, and I'm really happy about it. I'm really happy. Yeah, about these it. these female relationships that we got to get into are, are amazing. But um, I want to go back for a little bit. How is it working with Rebecca Breeds and how does she kind of get into, you know, introduce this project? She played Clarice is just I, I just feel like her face alone draws you in. To draws you in. She was the Rebecca was the very last woman who walked into the audition room, the last actor. And it's always kind of like, you know, there's like 30 days before anything. And it's always like that. And she brought this light with her. She has this light within her. And she she's Australian. She will kick your, I mean, she, she has a go switch. And she will go, which is, very, which is pretty much what Clarice has. And she will go until she drops. She's really extraordinary and a beast of an actress. I mean, she can act her butt off. What drew us to her was her light because we knew we were going to go into dark places and that she simply doesn't stop. Like Rebecca just simply doesn't stop. And that's the woman that we needed. You know, if you think about the movie, you don't ever see Clarice sitting. You almost never see Clarice sitting down except, except when she's facing Lecter. And um, there's, it, that's not a relaxed moment. In our show, I think there are a couple of shots of Clarice when she's asleep, but there are no relaxing moments for this woman. And that's, and Rebecca, she just doesn't stop. She's yeah. amazing. Amazing. And even like you're watching the, um, and I want to kind of touch on to the, um, the therapy, a lot of the therapy sessions that she's in as she's going through, like having to deal with these cases, then it's like yeah. she's back in therapy. Yeah. What I'm curious where, um, you know, just creatively talking about mental health, in the, the time period that we're in and just what she's facing as a woman too. She's in this world where they really don't want her on this side, you know, working the cases that she's working because they have a certain judgment about her, right. but she also has to keep a, a certain level of sanity. Yes. Yes. Um, the, here's the thing. One of the things, and this goes a little bit left. So I'm going to have to ask you to bear with me. Okay. okay. I was really interested in, exploring what it means to have a connection through trauma. Um, how does that make you someone's sister? If it's another woman, do you, do you, does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. Yeah. And the reason uh, this spoke and one of the reasons Clarice spoke to me so deeply. And also, first of all, let's just look for a second. She 
was still a trainee in the FBI Academy um, when she went into a basement of this guy who skins women and puts them on their skin like suits and dances around. That would fuck with anybody, right? And she pulled exactly, woman, exactly. Yep. that would and she pulled a woman out of a pit. And God only knows. And every as she was doing it, she consistently had to navigate this male gaze all the time. So she exactly right. So you can't go. I don't believe anybody goes through something like that without. If that doesn't traumatize you, it sure as shit is going to stir up some shit that you had when you were a little kid. Right. So one of the things I don't know if you know, but one of in 2017, I wrote a letter to the Hollywood Reporter. It was a Me Too letter. And it was a pretty significant one in the sense, they're all significant, but this was very, uh, very famous in power. It was by Russell Simmons. And after that letter, I met a woman. Uh, her name is Drew. And she had reached out to me. And she was in a similar situation. And I resisted meeting her and I resisted meeting her. And finally I met her and we had a really intense, very fast connection. Um, excuse me. Sorry. Um, we had this really intense, really fast connection and uh, we don't see each other often. Right. Because it's kind of like staring at the sun, but every now, every so often I'll get pretty regularly. I will get a sort of a secret little uh, text code that we have. She and I, and I was letting me know that she's in the world and I let her know that I'm still in the world. And I thought, holy shit, that's Clarice and Catherine. That's an understanding that you are in the same physical space at the same time with the same destiny mapped out for you. It's pretty dope, excuse me, pretty deep. And um, I knew that I wasn't alone in that idea I, I mean, certainly we found out in 2017, if we hadn't known before, that we're not, nobody's alone in that idea. But I thought it was worthy. I thought it was worthy of exploration because I hadn't seen it before. And I think it's important to uh, give that experience voice. Now, look, that's not what the whole show is about by any stretch, but it's a part of it. And it's been extraordinarily I uh, don't know if, if uh, it has a, it hasn't been eat your vegetables, but it, it's like that kind of helpful. But I'm really glad that it's a part of the show. I'm really glad that it's a part of the show, and it's honestly the first thing that I thought of when it came up. I thought, oh yeah, Clarice and Catherine are twins in this very strange way, and I thought there's power in that. It's actually their superpower. It's not the thing that that is knocking the shit is not the thing that's knocking them down. It's actually the thing that's propping them up and making them play. It's their fucking superpower. Yeah. Um, and if there's anything that I can do as like a human to impart that message, which is like, this is actually the thing that people are telling you is, is wrong with you or the thing that people are, are on you for. It's actually your superpower. So explore it, learn about it, lean into it. Cause it's gonna, it's gonna help you fly. And that's pretty much what happened. Yeah, they they the emotion in this series thus far is amazing. And I feel like there is nothing when you like you say you talk about a superpower. When you see um Rebecca Breeze playing this, when you see the dynamic between all these very talented uh actresses and women playing these characters, mm -hmm. it feels like nothing can stop them. It looks like in that scene they're down and out. But if you think about the struggles they're going to and how they realize their emotions and how mm -hmm. they use it, mm -hmm. very interesting. 
Love that about this. Love that about this. We wanted to, we wanted to honor the fact that women do not stop. And every single woman I know is tired, right? Every woman, I'm sure that every woman you know is tired, but I do not know a woman who stopped. We can't, we don't. Thank you. Yep. Yep. And that's, and the guys, they can sit back and they can, but we can't. And, uh, okay. And if that is, that is the shit to carry, then that's the shit to carry. I'm not fucking stopping. And none of these women are stopping either. The character of Ruth, the character of Ardelia, um, Catherine, and certainly not Clarice. It's like, yes. uh, to, I don't, there's a lot of not in the guys get guys often guys get to stop. And, uh, uh, we don't. Yeah. God and bless keep us. Me, and I'm going to, I'm going to ask this one question real quick. Then I'm gonna get off this. Cause I'm keeping me from spoiling. I want to spoil it for anybody. Cause you guys got to watch this episode and take this in, take all the details and everything in. Um, but what I want to kind of ask you, do you have a favorite, uh, I don't know if you remember episode numbers because I know you guys how the way you have to film all this stuff kind of together. But do you have like a favorite moment you kind of tease that's coming up? Oh my god! Well, episode one hundred and five was really fun because it was insane. Um, mm, yes, totally bananas. One hundred and six is probably one of my favorites. It's there's this dinner scene with Catherine and Ruth and Clarice, and it is some crazy female shit and precious, and it is some crazy female shit. And I am just it was like. It's about mothers and trauma and food and eating disorders and this fucking dog. And I was, when we were writing it, I was just so happy because I was like, gentlemen, step out of the room. This is some female territory. It's yes. awesome. And that's, yes. yeah, I think that airs April because March, there's March Madness. So I think um, that one's airing April 1. And I'm just, I don't usually watch them in real time because I don't have the time for it, but that's the one I'm going to watch um, yeah. in real time. It's, yeah. And well, you guys, CBS, so you got to check out Clarice because you're going to, there are so many moments, so many female empowerment moments that we need right now in this time period that we need to see these relationships, see yes. this struggle. Yeah. It's, 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 it's amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so um, much for saying that. Now to wrap up here, we got to, we got to bring this up. Cause listen, I'm not letting you get away without asking this. You what? just signed a four year deal with CBS studios. Congratulations. First Thank of all. Thank you very much. But you got to walk me through. Cause I'm trying to picture this. Where are you at this moment? When you hear this, how does this announcement get to you? Like, what are you doing? What are you working on? Oh, well, um, here's the, deal. I have a lot of jobs in the sense that, and I, I can take you through my jobs, which are, I'm a co-EP on Star Trek Picard. I'm an EP executive producer on Discovery. I'm a co-creator on Strange New Worlds. Um, I am a co-creator of Clarice, and I am a co-creator on The Man Who Fell to Earth, uh, starring the extraordinary Chiwetel Ejiofor, which shoots in London essentially next month. Um, so I'm, my plate is really full. That said, um, after some... I think there's going to be some quick, you know, during production, there's always rewriting on, and that's what's going to happen on Man Who Fell to Earth. It's, um, I'm going to start, uh, there's a show, I'm doing a show about my grandma for Showtime. Nice. I love yeah. It. I love it. Yeah. Which is really cool. I'm excited to figure out a non-biopic way to talk about her. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. It's really cool. It's really cool. So, uh, I have a lot on my plate. 
but I like a lot on my plate because I never know how long shit's going to be on my plate. So, so it's like, okay, yeah. I'll just, I am just going to do this all now. That's that. And that's what I'm doing. And that's what I'm doing. It's pretty amazing. Well, I appreciate it, Jenny. I appreciate your time, the energy. I'm very excited for you. This is, this Thank is you. cool. And the more women, I hope we, the more women, the more black women, this opens the door for the more women of color that can keep pushing this door down. I'm so excited for this, for Look, something new is changing. And I'm hoping it keeps going. Me too. Look, this is what I want to do in my life. I, whether I want, I, do I want to make more television? Sure. What I want to do is create creators. I want to populate the landscape with women of color creating television. That's what I want to fucking do. And in the time that, that I'm allowed to boss people around, that's what I'm going to do. Yes. Well, hey, we're glad you boss some people around. And I'm going to boss you guys around and tell you, you better go watch Clarice on CBS. You better watch it right now. Catch up. Make sure you're ready. You got March Madness. will give you a little bit of break. And then so now you can catch up on all the episodes. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much, Jenny. I appreciate okay. it. Okay. The Black Girl Nerds podcast will return in just a moment. There is this new game that I absolutely love. This is such a fun and interesting game. And you know what? There are times where I'm waiting at the doctor's office or I'm just bored and I need something to do to stimulate my mind and just kill the time. And Best Fiends is the perfect time filler for me right now. My new favorite game, it's with me all the time. It's a mobile game. Best Fiends is the top rated mobile puzzle adventure game. It has thousands of levels plus new content that is added all the time so you never run out of any entertainment it's free to download and listen i can't put it down i'm obsessed it's fun it's engaging and you know what anybody can play this game you don't have to be a hardcore gamer to love this it's a casual game it's made for adults but fun for all so i played it and okay Guess what level I'm on? I'm on like level 120. Like that is how much I've been playing this game. But I love it. It's just so interesting. You get new fiends that come across the way on your adventure. They get to level up and upgrade and evolve and they become more powerful. So it's fun seeing that process happen into the game. And I just really enjoy doing it. So I encourage you to check out Best Fiends. Just don't blame me if you become slightly obsessed. Download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Welcome to the Black Gunners Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan. And look, I'm bring, I'm calling back all the true crime fans. We're coming back and we give you a little twist now. This, all you people that are out there watching a the true crime and then you go and watch a little bit of Law and Order, that's what we got to turn this into. Because you need a, you know, you need a little bit of, you got to get the legal, the facts down and everything with it. So we got legal analyst, prosecutor, reporter, Yodi Tawadi. Got to make sure I get it right, Tawadi. Um, she is in the building and she is part of the uh, America's Most Wanted experts here. You guys always see Elizabeth going in and she got the experts behind her on the keyboard checking out the tech. So we got them in the building to give us all the information. So I'm so excited. Yo, D, how you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That was a great intro. 
Listen, I had to I had to talk it up because look, I told you when we first started this, I was not into you guys have totally changed how I think about like true crime and everything because I wasn't into it before because I'm a big scaredy cat. So I like seeing all this tech and it's kind of draw me in. Well, see that the fear. So I've been a huge true crime fan. I think everybody that's now jumping on the bandwagon, I'm like, what took you so long? Um, America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries was my thing when I was growing up with my, with my parents. So we grew, I grew up watching John Walsh. And so, you know, I think the fear is what drove me to keep going and watching. Because mm. I wanted to... I wanted to learn how to not have whatever I was watching happen to me. Right. So right, right, yeah, like a, everything was a teachable moment. Like, don't do that. Do this next time and learn. And so I was always hooked to the snapped and, you know, all, all these just true crime shows. But what was really special about America's Most Wanted is that one, I never believed that the show should have been off the air um, because it's something that is needed. It's ongoing. Uh, people break crimes they run and and so we need to get you know dangerous people off the street but right it was a full circle moment for me because I watched the show I grew up watching John Walsh and so for me to be now on the show is mm-hmm. like a surreal moment for me so yeah yeah and we gotta talk a little bit about your background here it's not a it's not it's not a huge stretch for you the, the legal facts and everything that you bring in here you know doing stuff for CN, CNN and yeah, uh, yeah. And I mean but what Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So I started my legal career as a prosecutor first. So um, the show is definitely utilizing my experience as a prosecutor. Um, and then I went across to the dark side, is what some people call it, uh, to criminal defense. Uh, I was a judge for a little bit. And then, you know, all throughout that whole time, I was a legal analyst going on networks and and talking about, you know, whatever was going on in the country legally, you know, covering some cases. Um, and then when AMW came around, I will say I was, I was a bit hesitant to align myself with a law enforcement show, you know, given, Mm. given my, my stance on, on police brutality and all of that stuff. Right. And some would ask like, you know, how, how could you, you know, work on a show about, you know, law enforcement and, and getting people, um, arrested, but the difference is my, my thing has always been that policing should be a community effort. And with mm, AMW, okay. America's Most Wanted, that is what they're utilizing. So whether it's the FBI or local police, they are utilizing the community. They are asking the, the community at large to help be their eyes and ears. And so if we can assist in that, to me, is a totally different scenario, right? And so we rely on that. And, and so with technology, you know, social media, people are able to be that armchair detective and are, and be those eyes and ears and be able to get us information a lot quicker than what it used to be when you just had to rely on a landline. You know what I'm saying? So, and, and the people that we're covering, you know, we're talking about people who are, who have been convicted of murder, but just, you know, maybe broke out of prison or you have people that, um, allegedly committed murder with, strong evidence of that and they've gone on the run. So these are dangerous people. And what I am about is getting those people to be held accountable. Now that accountability may look different for certain people, but at least they need to be held accountable. So, so yeah. And speaking of being held accountable, let's talk about these features of avatars and this new tech that you guys got to get. <laughs> these criminals are not getting away. When I tell y'all they're about to find some people, cause I'm talking about the, 
the uh you can walk us through a little bit too about what you guys are saying. I keep calling it mission impossible meets yeah. crime because you got all this tech and everything, and you guys like working behind the scenes on the phone and everything. You come up and explain the avatar, and I'm just sitting here like you guys can't see me on this podcast right now, but my eyes get so big when they bring this avatar up because it's like you breaking it down like every little thing, every yeah. little detail. No, it's, it's you every little description, every little you know, unique quality about these fugitives fugitives are going to be on these avatars. And what's really great about this is that you would think when we cover somebody who's been on the run for 20, 30 years, um, that they're gone. You're never going to find them. You know, it's impossible if they've been able to successfully get away for this long, then, you know, but these avatars not only show our viewers what these fugitives look like when they were last seen. So 20, 30 years ago, but we have this age progression technology that now we'll, we'll pull up another avatar of what they'll look like in the face, right? So what they look yes. like, what they would look like now, which is really interesting because I definitely want that to be made of me. I want to know what I'm going to look like in 30 years. But um, <laughs> it, it gives the viewers not just a description or a sketch, you know, sketch um, artists, you know, making a, a photograph of, of what they may look like. You actually give them a visual of what these people, and especially like if they had a beard when they last were seen, we have the, the the capabilities of removing that beard and showing the viewers what they look like with that and without that beard. And, and you could be looking at two different people, essentially. So mm-hmm. we definitely mm-hmm. give our viewers options of what these people look like um, from before to now. And so I don't know, I'd be afraid if I was a fugitive on the run for 30 years, because this might actually get them caught up because they just need to make one mistake. We've already put their face out there. so. So yeah. Yeah, and um and I know the recent I think it was uh Tamara Williams was one of the ones you guys thought. I think I pronounced Tamara Williams. Tamara Williams. Yeah, so gonna get caught. I know it, I feel it in my bones. Because she's well, not, I was gonna say Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Because well, she's not she's not one of those fugitives that has been on the run for that long, right? Yeah, like you just right. caught her in the Bronx six months ago. So we know you're at least yeah, in that vicinity. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. again with technology, and then we mm-hmm. were able and, and she had an Instagram account. At one point, so we showed those pictures of her and all the different yes. hairstyles. That's, social, that's what I was about to say. That social media gets you in trouble. Yeah, yep. you the I, I was like, I am, I am guaranteeing that she will be the next fugitive cop for sure. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She's getting got because I was like, <laughs> whoo, the details that was coming out of there. I was like, mm. and yeah, I mean, it was just family, like one wrong move. Yeah, yeah, one wrong move, and she made it by you know by being in this fish market for whatever reason, but. She definitely will be. I think we have not only the capabilities, but I think that it's so fresh that, yeah, yeah she's going to get caught. In fact, little tidbit, not everybody really knows about this. When we were shooting the pilot for America's uh, Most Wanted, the relaunch, um, we were covering three stories. Now, mind you, these three stories weren't going to be aired. So no one in the public right. was going to see this. This was just for the pilot. Um. And we were doing, we were digging around and researching and talking to law enforcement and everybody that was sort of involved with the cases. And because of that, something was triggered, something was remembered, something was revisited, and that person mm. actually got caught before anything had ever even aired, before we even shot the pilot. It was wow. our researching and our digging around and bringing to light certain things that got this person caught. So now imagine us actually being on air and saying, here's all this information you need to know. So that's a pretty cool story. Yeah. 
And how long now, when you're when you're sitting back, um, you know, chilling out at your desk, we're kind of chilling. You look chill to us because you, you, it's like second nature. Oh, but you, you got your laptop up and your, yeah. and your folders and everything. How long are you guys, uh, first of all, how long are you, I guess, trying to shoot this? But how long are you guys researching, grabbing all these facts and everything? Um, well, we're definitely, it's, it's always an ongoing process for sure. But you're doing it in advance of the shooting, mm-hmm. right? And then okay. you have to also be mindful that these people may actually get caught before we even get to air the story. So we always have to have backup cases. And when we have backup cases, we've got to do the research and the footwork for that too. But our stories are, are always growing. There's always more information. I mean, even when we have, um, I believe the law enforcement officer that was involved, one of the investigators for the Tamara Williams story was on set with the family, if you remember. Mm-hmm. And even while he was on set, he was giving us more information than we, than we knew. So it's always an ongoing process, but the bulk of it, we, we try to get done on the front end. Well, are there any cases for you where you're like, I can't believe I have to stand by. I know you can do your job and you just pursue because you've probably been seeing all kinds of stories and got all kinds of things going on. But were there any uh, fugitives where you like, I can't believe I got to sit and stand by this avatar. Like this case is unbelievable. I got to sit here and do this. Uh, <laughs> there is, you know, sometimes I'm like, man, are we... I think this this person's dead, you know, like if, they, if we're predicting they're like 80, I, you know, but. Right, like with the facts, yeah. But you just never know, you know, and yeah. I yeah. think that even if what my personal feelings may be about a particular fugitive, their stories are compelling. And um, I think that it's still worth telling, not only because it's a PSA to the public, right, but it's also out of respect for whatever victim came out of that case to tell their side of the story in, in, in some way and acknowledge them. So I think that every story is worth telling, regardless of whether, you know, I feel like they're out there or not. Um, it's still worth a, a, a tell for sure. Right. Absolutely. But yeah, these stories will definitely have you like, did that person really just try to get away? You know what? I think I've become, (laughs) so I was, uh, I I was telling the story of Tamara Williams to a friend who didn't get to watch the episode. And he, he was like, how do you say these things about her dismembering her boyfriend and, and all of this stuff and putting it in trash bags so calmly, you literally don't flip. Right. And, um, it's, it's because I, and it's, it's crazy, but I've become sort of desensitized to it because I was a prosecutor. I saw, I've seen the worst of the worst. And so as heart wrenching as that is, when I talk about it, I'm not very mindful. I mean, he was like, he was like, you know, and I'm looking at him like, have you never watched true crime? And and that's another thing. I I watch a lot of these. So dismembering a body is awful as that is it happens more often than we'd like to think. And so he was just like, you are so desensitized. And I, you know, I, I hope that that's not something that comes off on TV. I definitely don't want to do that, but it definitely, yeah. I still get, I, I'm waiting for that case that really mortifies me. Like, Oh my well, God, I haven't seen yeah, this in the decade right, right. long career I've had in, in criminal defense or criminal in the criminal. Yeah, and I feel like, well, yeah, and I feel like we need the legal analysts. We need that side of, you know, a side of you guys, a side of all you guys that are part of this show, that we can't do that. You know, we need you to be able to look That's at these yes. and say, hey, da-da-da-da-da. Like, yes. we're over here like, oh, my gosh, what? <laughs> but we need somebody to, like, look into it, you know, and keep their calm because we freaking out because we need all the facts of where we can, you know, where we can find out what they last did, you know, all that stuff. Very good point. Um, I'm glad you said that because I, I honestly didn't even think about it because – 
that's essentially what I try to do as a journalist is just really give people the meat and the potatoes, right? I don't want to get too um, emotional about a story, even though um, it can bring out emotions. You always want to be able to just bring people the facts and the law and and let them react in the way that they want. And so I, I'm glad you really brought, brought up that point because yes, you do need a level-headed mind to be able to to say these really hard, you know, truths about a case, right? Absolutely. So I'll let y'all react to it. Yeah, yeah. Let us do all the react before we got you. We got you. <laughs> um, speaking of which, though, I want to ask you too, just about your career. That is not eat like prosecutor being a judge. Why? Uh, I guess just why did you pick that career field? What was it about it for you? Like, what is honestly? Draw, I, I tell uh, people all the time. I this wasn't something I grew up thinking I was going to want to do. Um, I will say I've, I've always been an advocate for people. I was always that kid who would eat with the kid that's in the cafeteria by himself or get picked on. Um, and I think that came from um, my immigrant family. Um, when they came here, they were picked on for not knowing the language and the culture and taken advantage of. And so I became a fierce advocate of my family. Um, at a young age, you know, looking over legal documents for them that I didn't even understand because I knew the English language a lot better than they did. Um, that was what I became. That's the role I took on. So that advocacy still lives on. And when I was in college, I majored in English and communication and never even thought about what I could do with it. I just enjoyed it. And it was time to make a decision when I was graduating. It was either going to grad school or go to law school because you can go to law school with anything. And so I was like, well, I don't want to take the GRE. I don't want to deal with math. I hate math. So I went to law school, went to law school, was a mediocre student. Like, okay, this is not really my environment, the competitiveness and people being really savage. Um, yeah, I'm not really into it. But when I graduated, I left law school when the economy was so bad in 2009. So Obama had just become president, inherited this horrible economy. Jobs were like non-existent. So the opportunity came about for me to clerk for a judge, uh, a black woman who was on the bench. She had dreadlocks, a daishiki. And I was like, okay, this is about to be some cool stuff. Um, hardest job ever, but it opened up my eyes to criminal law. And when my clerkship was done with her, I said, okay, I've had interactions with defense attorneys and I've had interactions with prosecutors. My biggest goal now at this point, since I am interested in criminal law, that's what I knew I, I was interested in because of, her, of that experience, is I want to learn how to be a trial lawyer. And the only way I could really do that and feel comfortable is to do it on someone's dime. And that was with the prosecutor's office, because I wasn't ready to hang my own shingle and start practicing law on my own. I don't know what I'm doing. So the best route for me to take is to first go to the prosecution side. And then I knew eventually I'd go over to the other side, but I wanted to learn as much as I can. So that's why I went to yeah. the prosecutor's office and we need more of us there. Um, mm -hmm. It's even how you need the diverse background uh, of prosecutors to be, because that's what you're using when you evaluate these cases. And so if everybody looks the same, if everybody has sort of the same experience, they're looking at a defendant who more than likely is black or brown. And they're looking at it through the lens of the experiences, experiences that they have. And right. so it was really important that we were represented on that side because I would look at a case completely different than my white colleague. And so yeah. that started 
you know, my juices started to flow and I was like, oh my God, there's some things I really want to talk about. And there's some things I want to like tell people on how to not help me prosecute them, right? Dumb mistakes. But I wasn't able to do that as a prosecutor, which is why I left and went to the other side. I love that. I love that. See, you, you, you're giving everybody, you're educating everybody right now that's thinking about any kind of law related job or how you can move around, how you can learn, how you can figure out where you fit. Yes. We, listen, there's, there's a place for everybody. I, I will say there's a lot of power players in the criminal justice system, you know, from prosecutor to judge, to defense attorney, um, to the parole officer, probation, you know, um, obviously police officers, and you need people in those positions. Um, and you need people with a diverse background. And it's a community effort for sure. And I feel like that is what um, feels right about America's Most Wanted for me. And it's just, a, I mean, listen, I'm a black woman on a, on a show that's groundbreaking, iconic. And at the end of the day, it's about being a strong voice for victims everywhere. And that's what I was doing as a prosecutor. That's who I was defending, the victims. Then when I went over to the quote unquote dark side, which I don't think is dark at all, right? It's because <laughs> um, we, we do the Lord's work on that side, I'm telling you. But that was me defending people who either were wrongfully accused or people whose constitu- may be guilty, but constitutional rights were violated. And so that side isn't utilized as much on AMW, but they certainly tap into to my, my, my time at the prosecutor's office, which I actually really enjoyed and learned so much. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, one more question about AMW um, on the law side. What I'm always curious. Okay, besides the charges, once you once you catch these guys, catch these fugitives. Besides the the uh, main charge that they're you're looking for them for, is there an additional charge for yeah. being a fugitive? Yeah. Okay. So. Um, you so you either have a fugitive that was convicted, which we have we've covered a case and we have upcoming cases where there are fugitives who were convicted who were already convicted of whatever crime they broke, but before they were sentenced, they took off, right? Hmm, so yeah. when they took off, if they're caught, which we hope they are, not only will they be sentenced for that crime originally but they'll also be charged for being a fugitive on the run. Okay. And for whatever crimes they may have committed while they were on the run. Cause now you're kind of having to take, you know, a, you're going to have to have a low profile. You can't just necessarily take any, any job. So you might still continue that life of crime in order to survive. And then if you're caught, you've got all those additional. So we're going to be covering a case where this couple would have only been serving fed time for a few years, but because they decided to run, they're now looking at a whole nother level of, of of Mm, charges of the penalty being increased now. So yeah. And anybody else helping people stay hidden. If you're aiding them, giving them money, calling them on the phone and then telling police, yeah, I don't know where they are, but you're, you're keeping, you're helping them stay, stay away. You're right. also looking at charges for aiding and abetting. And that is a serious charge too. So anybody that's wanting yeah, to help, yeah. you got to be careful with that. 
Yeah, I'm like, mm, I'm turning you in. I'm backing off of that. You know, what are they going to do? These fugitives are going to call family, right? They've got to survive. They want money. Yep, so yep. they're going to go to family, friends, and it's how you take that call and what you say after that point that could get you caught up. Yeah. yeah. You, whew, these stories, you guys, America's Most Wanted, you got to check it out Mondays on Fox. Okay, I want to switch gears a little bit here as we okay. kind of wrap. Okay. Um, Because your suit game is on point. So I need you to leave us with, because I've been checking it out on IG. So I need you to let us know what oh, are you looking for. Yes, I do. I need to know some tips on when these suit games are on point. Like, what what do you need to have to make sure these suit games are on point? Because you got to rock it for the show too. Well, I you know I was kind of a stickler about. So I am a I I liked. I've always been this way. It hasn't just been because of TV. When I tell you, when I was a DA, when I was a prosecutor, they said that we had to wear every time we went into court, you had to wear pantyhose. And I'm like, what? Mm. Yeah. I'm not a fan of pantyhose. I'm not even a fan of skirts. And so I always wore pants in court. I didn't have to worry about the pantyhose at that point. So for me, when I started doing, um, you know, media, people have this idea of what lawyers should look like, you know, really buttoned up and stuffy and just really just the standard look. You, you know what I mean? It wasn't my, I wasn't trying to go out of my way to just be stylish. I just wanted to be me and being me meant, yeah, I'm going to have to get this suit tailored. You know, I like a, a nice fitting suit. I love colors. Um, I love the high waisted look maybe with, you know, so I kind of just went there and, and I made it to where it's now sort of acceptable and people actually look forward to it. They're like, every time you go on TV, I'm like, what's she wearing? You know? So now I'm starting to tag, you know, the designer so that, cause I get those. And instead of like, honestly answering 20 different DMS, I just start tagging right. them. And this is where, and so I've had lawyers uh, approach me and say, Hey, I, I, you've, you've given me inspiration on how to switch up my, my attire for, for court. Cause you don't have to dress all, you know, and what they do the reason why they would tell us to dress that way in court is because they saw it as a distraction for jurors. Jury, the jury just needs to really focus on what you're saying. You shouldn't have hair that's distracting. And that's a whole nother, a whole nother subject matter right there. But your hair shouldn't be distracting. Your clothes shouldn't be distracting. And so you should just wear this. I don't believe in that. I think that they could pay attention. I think they could chew and walk at the same time. They could admire what I'm wearing and they could also listen to what I'm saying. So, right. Yeah. There you go. Lay it out. You know what? That's what I'm talking about. I love it. Well, it looks cute. And I'm, and I'm like, you know, I'm turning in for the show. I'm like, what? I look, I'm looking just for the color and the suit change. And then, you know, I go back because, you know, we got, we're trying to catch criminals. We're yeah, yeah, yeah. Criminals. We're trying to get back on it. But then I, but I see, I look at that first. Like I'm peeping out the wardrobe first. It's crime. we got some badass women getting it together on the show. It's crime, but make it fashion. You can do both. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, y'all can, y'all can, y'all can, y'all can working out on the yes. show. I'm not mad at it. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> So I well, Yana, thank you so much. It's been so yeah. much fun talking with you. This was really fun. I really, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you also. And hopefully you come back when you, because I know you're always working on something. I know it, I know it don't sit down. I, I definitely am working <laughs> on something. I hope to to reach out to you all and, and talk to you about my, my new show that's going to be launching next month. And um, it, it's. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask you about that, but I didn't know how exclusive it was. Um, it hasn't come out yet, yet, but you know, I, I, it, it's, it's with the black news channel and we're going to, we're doing some, I've had some interviews this morning, um, about it. So something should be coming out soon, but 
it is going to be all legal. Everything that I was talking to you about, but more focused on social justice issues okay. that affect black and brown communities, marginalized communities. And it's going to be that every single day, because what it is when I'm called by these networks to give legal analysis on stuff, it's about what they want me to talk about. And for a large uh, part of 2020, 2019, ever since Donald Trump went into office, that's all we talked about. You know, it was legal, mm. but yep. Donald Trump related, right? But there were so many stories that were getting overlooked that communities of color wanted to talk about and have on mainstream, right? This is my opportunity now to just focus on that. Even if even if we still had the shenanigans of Donald Trump, um, I would still have control over what is being talked about. And so I'm really excited about it. And it's launching in a few weeks. And I would love to definitely give you all more details about that. So. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely come back and tell us about it because I'm loving all these outlets, by the way, the time now where everybody's creating these outlets for people of color yeah. that is focused on a certain demographic that yeah. we should have already had. Yes. But it's good that everybody's taking note now and opening up these uh, these outlets. So it's a it's a reckoning and it's a reckoning that was long overdue. And I'm glad that we're all having this conversation. And I just hope that it's it's my job to keep it ongoing. I don't want it to just be a wave something that's popular in the moment and then it, it dies down. It's, it's our job to keep the conversation going. So yeah. Right, right. So listeners, definitely check this out. Keep the conversation going. You heard Yoda. Keep it going. And also check out um, America's Most Wanted. Yes. So we got to get night, these criminals. 9, 8 Central. And if you missed the first two episodes, you can catch it on Tubi, Hulu, and Fox Now app. Nice. There you go. That's where I've been catching up on Hulu. So yeah, y'all go check it out. Yes. <laughs> Yoda, thank you again thank so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. You Have a great for listening. Weekend. All right, you too. Bye. Bye. The Black Girl Nerds podcast will return in just a moment. As a listener of the Black Girl Nerds podcast, you know what it's like to be part of a supportive and engaging online community. You'll find the same level of support when you study computer science online with Oregon State University. Oregon State eCampus is an innovative provider of online education, renowned for its expertise in delivering computer science programs to students around the world. You'll receive support from before you even apply until the day you graduate. With one-on-one -on -one guidance from enrollment specialists, student success coaches, academic advisors, expert faculty, and a global student network. Because at Oregon State, you'll learn online, but never on your own. You can choose from three dynamic offerings as well. A 60-credit post-baccalaureate program if you're already a college grad, a Bachelor of Science program, or a cybersecurity certificate if you're seeking a credential to add to your resume. And work with a pre-admissions advisor to discover if Oregon State's computer science programs match up with your interests and career goals. See for yourself why Oregon State eCampus is consistently ranked in the nation's top 10 by U.S. News and World Report. Accelerate your career today. Visit ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash nerds to learn more. That's ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash nerds welcome to the black girl nerds podcast i'm your host ryan and for all you true crime fans if you get a little too intense during a, during a game of clue 
I have some good news for you. America's Most Wanted is back, you guys, and it has a modern day upgrade. So cool. And I am with the host, Emmy Award-winning journalist, Elizabeth Vargas, is joining me. Hey, Elizabeth, how you doing? I'm so happy to be with you. I love true crime fanatics. I know, like my mom pulled me into this. I was, I have to be honest, like I get, I'm very much a scaredy cat. So sometimes a true crime gets to me like it's a little unnerving, but I checked this out and I really love the modern, uh, The I think maybe the tech and maybe looking a little Mission Impossible kind of pulled me in to the world that I wasn't used to. So that's really, really cool about that. Well, it's funny. We had a, a lot of viewers from our first episode last week uh, tweet me and say, oh my God, I would have nightmares if I stood next to that 3D avatar of that convicted killer, you know, who escaped yeah. prison and is on the run right now. But that's right. uh, yeah, really cool. I mean, the technology is amazing what we can do. It's it's unbelievable, really. It's like a game changer since the show went off the air um, 10 years ago. I mean, think about it. You know, we all walk around with HD cameras in our pockets with our iPhones and we can take pictures, upload videos, send messages, you know, access our social media platforms instantaneously. And then you have everything we can do in the studio, which is super cool. Right. And I want to back up for a little bit here. Um, for listeners that know, like 2020, uh, World World News Tonight, Good Morning America. If people do not know news, sometimes I feel like people think you guys just get up there, read a teleprompter. But news is a whole different ballgame, especially like live news. You know what I mean? Like it's intense. You guys are doing the investigation. You're talking to all different kinds of people. You're out in the elements sometimes. So I'm curious to know why investigative journalism? Like, why did that catch your attention? You know, I um, studied it in college. I thought, you know, I was the editor in chief of my high school newspaper. And I thought, I like doing this. So I'll study it in college. Mm -hmm. I sort of, you know, I happened to pick the best school of journalism in the country to go to college. And I started working the day after I graduated and I loved it. And even though I starved my way through my 20s and most of my 30s, to be honest, because you don't get into this business to make money. You know, journalism is not right, for people yeah. who want to get rich. It's for people who want a front row seat, you know, to what's happening in the world and want the chance to, you know, I've been everywhere. I've been in war zones in Iraq and many times to Iraq. I've been to the jungles of Cambodia to do a story on baby trafficking. I went to the slums in India to do a story, a big special on gender side. I mean, I feel really lucky that I've been all over the world and all over the U.S. and getting to talk to people who've done extraordinary things and, you know, um, and, and tell my viewers all about those stories and experiences. It's an amazing ride. It really is. Do you have a most, because I know you've done so much, this might be a difficult question. Do you have like a most memorable story that you covered, interview that you've done? Oh, gosh, I have a few that and they really you know, span the spectrum. I mean, you know, I think going into the Oval Office to interview President Bush was, you know, I, I liked him very much. Um, we spent a lot of time. And then after we got done with the interview, we spent another half an hour just sitting and talking. That was a pretty extraordinary experience. I loved being in Iraq when their first Democratic elections happened after the fall of Saddam Hussein. That was pretty incredible. You know, I did a whole hour long special on a little boy with creature Collins syndrome, which is a syndrome that severely deforms their face. And uh, we followed him for three years and did this amazing hour long special, you know, basically on the real life Wonder Boy after the, the book Wonder and the movie Wonder that came out. And, you know, that one, that one really touched me in a way that nothing ever has to see the incredible courage of, of this family and Magda and, Ray, and Russell, the two parents who had no idea when their baby, until their baby was born and came out that he would have this syndrome. They didn't even, as, as Russell, you know, told me, 
in the delivery room, you know, he began to scream. He did, he said the baby didn't even look like a human. Um, and just what they went through and did and the incredible courage of that little boy as he goes through life, he's now a teenager. That was an amazing special I did too. And I did a lot of true crime reporting, you know, I covered the Amanda Knox case for five years, mostly from Italy. Um, I covered the John Bonnet Ramsey case for more than 20 years. I just did a special on them a couple of years ago for A&E. So, you know, that remains unsolved and what a mystery and somebody someplace got away with the, a terrible murder on Christmas night, you know, of a little girl. Right. So I did a lot of true crime too. That's cool. I could just sit here and listen to you go on and on about these different stories. It's, it's, just, it's so interesting. Just the, the doors, you know, that opens and the stories that we would never know about, you know, without yeah. investigative journalism. Yeah, um, so there's a lot of work to it. America- yeah, it is. It's definitely a lot of work. Um, and we appreciate you doing the work. We also appreciate you hosting America's Most Wanted. Thank you. So walk us through, I'm just trying to figure out where you are when somebody calls or who calls you and says, hey, Elizabeth, would you like to host America's Most Wanted? Well, you know, it's actually not a bit as big a, a jump as you would think. Um, mm-hmm. I spent so many, you know, I was right. you know, the host of 2020 for 15 years and we did a lot of true crime during that time. I mean, I did a lot of other stuff too, but we, true crime was the, the, the meat and potatoes and Dateline only does true crime. And they're, you know, all basic cable networks dedicated to true crime. But this show is the, is the only show out there. There's only one show that does this. It's America's most wanted that actually offers our viewers a chance to, to write the end of the story to change yes. the story, to mm-hmm. actually bring justice for the victims of these crimes. Cause I got to tell you, you know, doing all that true crime reporting for all those years and years and years by, by far hands down, the hardest part of doing that was interviewing the victims of the crime. It was, you know, sometimes it was hard for me to keep it together. They, you know, and not cry because it was just so deeply, deeply moving. Um, and this is a show where we can help. You know, we can help bring justice for them by by keeping our eye out and and spotting these guys. I mean, the show has a track history of finding nearly 1,200 fugitives. I hope we can continue that with this new incarnation of the show because that's what makes this show special from all the other true crime shows that are out there right now. Right. And um, I want to go to back, back to the uh, tech on this, too, which is so cool, which drew me in. Do yeah. you feel like you're like some kind of secret government official in this in this setup that you guys are in? Because this thing is cool. Like I was looking at this like I think I think I clicked on the right thing. I might be in the middle of like some kind of agent movie or something because there's people walking behind you when the avatar pops up. Yeah, what does all that feel like for you on set? It's fun. I just I got to tell you, it's just a lot of fun. Um, it's a totally different skill set, um, but I think it's great. And it's actually it's surprising how quickly you get used to it. Um, but these avatars are great because we can show, for example, in this uh, in, in next week's episode, one of our fugitives has a very distinctive tattoo on her going from her elbow up to her shoulder on her left arm. And, you know, it's difficult to hide, difficult to cover up. I mean, she can't wear turtlenecks her entire life if she ever if somebody ever sees her without a, a turtleneck on, they would see this tattoo and they could instantly spot her. So it's a, it, you know, we get to offer all sorts of different, another fugitive had part of his thumb blown off. So you'll see a nub where his thumb is yet. Another Mm -hmm. has all sorts of scars, a lot of tattoos, actually, you'd be surprised, but all these, you know, the height, they get to see how big they are standing next to me, how, um, it, it will better help people recognize these guys. We think if they see them out and about now, how much, um, how much of your investigative journalism are you bringing into is out of is all the facts kind of pre 
sent to you or are you kind of figuring out some of the yeah, stuff no, that you can kind of present it? We do lots of work on, you know, leading up to the story. For example, on the sto- we did a story last week um, on, you know, a, a really bitter child custody case that mm. ended up with the mother fleeing with the 11-year-old daughter and the father now has been searching for two years. Um, these are tough cases. I've reported on a lot of these cases in the past. And I read every single court document, all the depositions from all the therapists who had, you know, examined and spoken to over the course of two years, the mother, the father and the father and the daughter, just because we want to, you want to make sure you have all the facts. Um, and so we're, we're doing all that homework, you know, there's a lot of homework done into all of these stories. And then to figure out, we don't have time to do all the, the facts. So which facts do we are most important to first tell the story this true crime story, and second, equip our viewers to recognize this fugitive if and when they see him or her. Now, we all know the original with uh, John Walsh. Did you, were you able to talk to him at all? Were there any tips yeah. that were given? Did you yeah. pick up anything from doing that? Yeah. He was great. You know, he just, he had all sorts of tips. Um, but, you know, I had interviewed him several times uh, back when he was hosting, Good, you know, uh, America's Most Wanted, and I was hosting Good Morning America on ABC. So I already, I knew John. Um, but we just spoke a couple days ago. So, and he was, he just wished, mainly just wished me luck and told me how thrilled he was to see the franchise coming back and thought I would be great at it. And I just appreciate his support. I can't even tell you how much it means to me. Mm-hmm. Now, were there, I know you talked a lot about um, sometimes when you interview people, you get those stories where it's kind of hard to just kind of leave it, leave it there, like leave it at work. Were there any, were there any times, um, like any episodes, I know you can't give too much away. You want to keep a surprise for everybody, but the, were there any moments where you were like, "Oh, I can't believe I'm gonna have to stand next to this avatar. We got to keep going with this story." You know what I mean? Like any anything that kind of really stuck out to you? There was one avatar that you're gonna see um, coming up in our second episode that I found very chilling, just because this guy is super smart and a real chameleon, like the kind mm. of guy who never stands out in a crowd, always blends in. But over Uh and over and over, he's been a mastermind. He will do the most audacious things to save himself, you know, taking hostages, shooting a a, a deputy. You know, he's he's a scary guy and he's been Mm -hmm. out there for a long time. And a lot of people have come into contact with him. So we know that there's a potential for a lot of people to see him. That one... um, you know, really standing next to that avatar was kind of a little bit creepy. And then one of the other stories in, in our second week's episode, we had the victims of the crime in the studio with me and they just, oh God, it was really, it was hard to have, you know, to see a family suffering the way they do. Um, you know, her, the, their brother was murdered by this woman who, with the rose tattoo and dismembered and left in bags along an an interstate in the Midwest. And I just can't, I found myself imagine like, you know, I have a brother. What if that happened to my brother? You know, she, especially when the sister told me that her mother who just died prayed for every day, prayed every day for two years that they would find this woman and get justice for their, her son. And she died without ever giving that justice. And, um, I sure hope that family gets it now because they've been through hell. They really have. Yeah, that's the other thing I was going to ask you. It was kind of hard to be because, you know, the thing, like you said, it is that unique thing where you can bring in. Like you get to hear from the victims, you know, as hard as it may be. You get to have the audience be more interactive. It's like, well, hopefully this brings awareness. Somebody sees something. Somebody can tell us something. Is it ever hard to know 
to just hit so many different, um, I guess, elements, or you're looking for so many different people where you're like, oh, I hope they, this one maybe is still out there. It's been so many years. Is that kind of hard, like that investigative side of you? Um, I actually look at everything as, you know, I think these guys are very catchable, you know, um, Mm -hmm. I I think certainly some of them, I think that we have a better chance, um, of catching them than others. Um, I think that the two that we're featuring in this coming week's episode are even more catchable than, for example, maybe one from last week's, but, um, I think they're very catchable mostly because both these people we know have been, look. These people, these fugitives didn't move to the moon. You know, there's some place dealing with somebody They're, you know, at a, at a waiting on your table at, at maybe working as a waitress or maybe they're, you know, standing next to you in the grocery store or maybe they're, you know, renting an apartment next door to you. There's some place they're not, you know, right. absolutely. Yeah. Right. And somebody is dealing with them and interacting with them. And we, that's what we need people to do is to start looking out again and noticing, um, you know, and, and, and calling those tips in because there are dedicated, you know, FBI agents and U.S. Marshals agents, deputies who have all, you know, worked for years and years to try and bring justice for these victims of these crimes. And we really need to do it. You know, when you, again, when you talk to these victims of these crimes, you just can't even imagine what it's like to live knowing that somebody is still out there enjoying their freedom who has done something so awful to you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, guys, you guys need to watch this. I need to tell you that it's on Fox Mondays, 987 Central. You can also catch it on Hulu. I had to play catch up on Hulu. So there you go. It's another way for you to watch it. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth, I kind of want to shift gears with you for a minute. You have a podcast, Heart of the Matter, right? Can you kind of tell yeah. us about that and, and why you started that up? Absolutely. Um, I'm on the board of directors for the Partnership to End Addiction. And we started. I started a podcast for them called Heart of the Matter. And I interview, I would say like, 85 to 90% of the people I interview on the podcast are people who are in recovery um, and who share the, you know, the gory details, so to speak, of what it was like for them uh, to be in the grip of addiction, whether to drugs or to alcohol, and how they got better and what their life is like now. Because right now we know in this country that only 18% of people who need help get it. It's even Mm -hmm. less than that for people of color. Blacks and Hispanics are even less likely to get treatment for addiction. I'm Hispanic. That is a big thing for me. Um, we also know that women uh, have it. There's a very close connection between alcoholism and anxiety. 60% of women who are alcoholics suffer from anxiety. And this pandemic has been a terrible crisis. So I think part of the reason, you know, I, um, I did this podcast is because I know there's a huge stigma around mental health and addiction right now. A third of all Americans believe it's a moral failing to be addicted to something and I think by hearing these people's stories, they will they will understand that you can suffer from addiction, get better, and go on mm-hmm. to do extraordinary things in your life, you know? Absolutely. So people yeah. might be less afraid to put their hand up and say, I need help, um, and, and will reach out and get that help. It's really, really important, especially right now with this pandemic and the mental health crisis and addiction crisis that's gotten even worse over the last year of isolation for everybody. Yeah, people definitely need that outlet and just being brave enough, um, having you to share your story or having other people's outlet for everybody else to share their stories is, I think, is a huge thing. I know it definitely helps me a huge thing to get that out. Yeah. I mean, we it's like we even had Meghan Markle on television with Oprah, you know, a week ago saying she go. was em- yep. embarrassed to say that she was suicidal and needed help. Mm-hmm. 
we have got to change that. So, you know, we're not preachy on heart of the matter. I did interview Trump's, President Trump's drug czar. I interviewed President Obama's drug czar, all about what they, you know, accomplished for, you know, addiction and what needs to be accomplished. But we have to do a lot more to make treatment affordable and accessible. But mostly we have to stop this attitude that everybody has that if I admit I have a problem, my life is over. You know, I won't ever work again. Nobody will ever want me again. That's not true. And that's why I interview these people on my podcast, right. like Zach Taylor, who, you know, was picked by the bachelorette, Tasha, um, you know, who is like, uh, you know, doing great work, was very honest about his addiction to drugs and alcohol, uh, very honest about how bad it got. He actually told me we made a lot of news in my podcast because he admitted that he had conned a doctor into removing his gallbladder for no reason, just so he could get access to painkillers. So, you know, and he's now paying it forward and really working hard in the field of recovery and going on network television and telling millions of people I suffer from addiction was a huge service. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing too, um, kind of wrapping here that I wanted to ask you about that I think, I think it's important too. A lot of people just don't take a moment just to like breathe, you know what I mean? And just sit for a minute, you know, and kind of think. So when you're not, you know, you don't have all the lights, the cameras, what do you kind of do to kind of de-stress and, and, you know, kind of recenter yourself and get ready? I meditate. I'm a big proponent of meditation. That is a huge help for me. And it, by the way, it doesn't have to be 20 minutes of transcendental meditation. Like I, I know how to, you know, it can be just take five minutes to close your eyes and breathe deep and lower your heart rate. Um, it can do wonders, you know, and other than that, honestly, just taking care of yourself, make sure you get enough sleep. I work out. I find for me, I feel always so much better if I get some exercise, even if it's just a brisk walk someplace. But you know, what we have to remember is everybody feels this sometime. You know, it's very rare for somebody to go through life and not feel anxious or depressed at some point in their lives. So I think we have this attitude or idea that everybody else, life is easy and grand and fabulous and nobody else has problems. And that's wrong. It's There's a saying for it in recovery. It's called don't compare and despair. You know, if you're constantly looking at other people and thinking they have it better, they have it easier. It's, you know, you don't know what's going on in their lives. So just focus on being grateful for what you have and letting go of what you can't control. And news question, how many cups of coffee are you drinking? Um, (laughs) I can only drink coffee in the morning. I'm not a great sleeper. So I love my cappuccino in the morning, but I've got to limit it to two or three. Yeah. Do I I sound over caffeinated right now? No, no, no. I just, that's just in news and news. That's just where you go to. I do, oh, uh, yeah. I do audio and directing in news. So you do, I had to start drinking at least a little bit of coffee. Yeah. I oh, did yeah. It before. I was like, that's yeah. a definite news question. I had to get that in for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's hard. Elizabeth is so nice. Yeah, it has. Yeah. So nice to talk to Elizabeth. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank for you time. so much. It's great to talk to you too. And you guys stay safe out there and we will be back with more for you. Again, make sure you go check out America's Most Wanted. Check it out. Thank you guys. Bye. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Broadnax. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find various episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Audio Boom, Google Play Music, and Spotify.